A person's final words are usually important words. And that's what we have before us today. Deuteronomy is a book of the final words of Moses to the people he had led for so long. There were so many things he wanted them to remember once they made their home in the promised land. And he seemed to understand human nature that we are prone to forget. We so quickly forget God's promises, so quickly forsake God's ways. Something has to happen for us to trust and obey over the long haul of life. What is it? Let's listen in to what Moses has to tell us about what has to happen in our hearts. Does any parent ever really feel ready for that day when you drop off your child at college or boot camp or the first apartment and then just drive away? 18 or more years have been focused toward this goal of training the child to live successfully away from home. But when that day comes, we suddenly feel ourselves wishing we could roll back the clock and go over all the basics again because we wonder if our children will eat right and get the sleep they need and be considerate of their roommates. We wonder what choices they'll make with so much freedom and so many new opportunities. We wonder if the things we have sought to instill in them have become a part of who they are and who they will want to become or if they'll simply shed that skin once they're on their own. With so much we want them to remember, we can't help but give them a few final reminders before we drive away. Remember to eat a green vegetable once in a while. Remember to wash the sheets on your bed at least once or twice this semester. Remember that you don't have to do something just because it seems like everybody else is doing it. Remember where you came from and who you belong to and all that we've taught you. And give us a call sometime, will you? As parents, we often feel fear rising up inside of us because we all know of kids or perhaps have been kids or had kids who exited their parents' homes to head off to college or some other life outside those four walls only to jettison all that was modeled and taught to them. In those cases, it seems that all of the rule keeping at home was just that, external adherence to rules that never really became a part of them. And oh, how we wish that there were some magic elixir we could sneak into the meatloaf that would ensure our children would truly embrace Christ and develop a desire to please him. But we know we don't have the power in our parenting to make that happen. Our example, our rules, our reminders simply won't do it. Deep down, we know that something has to happen in their hearts. To live differently from the world around them will require something more than a list of rules and reminders. If something doesn't happen in their hearts, the deepest part of who they are, either all the rule keeping will be discarded for a life of rebellion or apathy toward God, or the rules will be coldly kept but with no genuine spiritual life. Today, as we open the book of Deuteronomy, 
we get to listen in on Moses' final words to Israel, spoken as they stood on the brink of the promised land. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 1, and we begin in verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Picture Moses like a parent standing on the curb outside the college dorm. His people are moving out of the wilderness home that they have shared with him for 40 years, and they're moving into Canaan. And he will not be going with them. Instead, he'll be heading home. He has spent 40 years preparing them for this day. But he wonders, will they remember all that they have learned during these years spent under his guidance? Has any real love for God and passion for his holiness developed in their hearts so that they will remember the Lord in this new land? Have all the sacrifices and feasts and worship services in the wilderness bound them to God and his promises? Or has it all been empty of any real devotion? In the three speeches that make up the book of Deuteronomy, Moses doesn't really say a bunch of new things that he has never said before. Instead, Moses reminds the Israelites of all he has told them and what has gone on before. He reviews the experiences that must remain imprinted on their memory and be part of their identity, the ways of life and habits of the heart that must become intrinsic to their way of life. So he sets out on the edge of this new life in the land to remind them of all that they need to remember if they want to enjoy everything that God has promised. In the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses recounts the unhappy history of what took place the last time the Israelites stood in this same place on the edge of entering into the land. Look at Deuteronomy 1 in verse 26. You would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. God's people have been here before on the threshold of the promised land, only to be banished to the wilderness because of the rebellious refusal to trust that God would empower them to defeat the enemies in the land and give it to them. 
They need to remember this sad history so it will not be repeated. So that instead of rebelling and murmuring and refusing to enter, they will believe, obey, and enter in. So Moses warned them with reminders of past failures, but he also encouraged them with reminders of recent victories. By recalling the recent victories over the king of Sihon and the king of Bashan, Moses assured them that God will give them many more victories over those who now control the land. Just as the Israelites waiting to enter into the promised land needed to remember what they had done in the past, we too need to remember what we have done in our past. We need to look squarely at the fear and unbelief that has led us into sin in the past so that we don't walk that way again. We also need to remember the victories God has given us over sins in the past that we thought had too much power in our lives to ever be overcome. Remembering our past failures as well as our past victories prepares us for the future victories over sin God intends to give to us. Having reminded them of what they had done, Moses then began reminding Israel of what they had heard God say. And surely as significant as what God said was how he said it. Turn a couple of pages to Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 11. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. One would think that it would be pretty hard to forget standing at the foot of a mountain that was on fire and hearing the voice of God thundering out of the fire. But of course, none of the generation Moses was speaking to had actually stood at the foot of Sinai that day. That was their parents who had heard the thundering voice of the one who had brought them out of Egypt and making his claim upon their lives in the form of the Ten Commandments. Moses is saying that when God spoke to their parents, he had their descendants in mind, so that in a profound sense, as far as God is concerned, they were there in their parents. What was it that God said in his thundering voice from the fiery mountain? Look at Deuteronomy 5, beginning at verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And later, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. From there, Moses reiterated the Ten Commandments God had given to their parents, adding down in verse 22, 
These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. There they were, the words of the God who made the heavens and the earth engraved in stone. Moses remembered well how the people responded that day, 40 years before. They said to Moses these words from Deuteronomy 5, 26 and 27. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. We will hear it and do it, they say. If only that had been true. And it seems God wishes it had been true too, because Moses quotes God as saying in verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well for them and with their descendants forever. God heard their determination to obey, but he knew they did not yet have the heart for it. What was needed was for these words to be written not only on stone tablets, but also on their hearts. Look in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What God has said cannot be taken lightly. It must be worked into the fabric of their lives becoming the fodder for their conversations and the very foundation of their homes. When our children leave the nest of home, we hope that they will carry and invest themselves and engage with others in a way that is consistent with the identity and values of our family. This is what Israel is to do when they enter into Canaan. They need to remember who they are and specifically whose they are. Turn to page 2, Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Israel was chosen by God to be a beacon of godlikeness that would radiate throughout the world. They were to be his royal priests, representing him, declaring him, so that all nations would be blessed through them. It was through them that God intended to accomplish his grand purpose in the world, to glorify himself by bringing salvation. 
a salvation that would come to the whole world through one special descendant of these chosen people. But for them to be all that God intended was going to require some refinement, some rubbing off of the rough edges, which is exactly how God used the 40 years spent wandering in the wilderness. We might think that those were wasted years spent going nowhere. But when God makes us wait, that time of waiting is never wasted. The 40 years in the wilderness would be wasted only if Israel did not remember all that the Lord taught them there. Look in Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God intended for Israel to develop genuine humility as they were forced to face up to their true selves in the desert, a place where no one could hide behind pretense and pride. Evidently, it wasn't an accident that they went some time without food and felt the discomfort of hunger before God sent the manna. What they perceived as lack was actually a gift that would help them come to terms with their need for God and his provision. Over the years, they learned to rely on God's provision day by day. That dependence on God was never intended to be a temporary stopgap measure until they could get back to taking care of themselves. Every day that they had to wait for God's provision, their dependence upon God should have become more of a part of them. Hopefully, it will have become a habit that will not be broken once they are living in the land of milk and honey. By depending on God's promise to provide manna day by day, the Israelites were to learn that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What were the words that came by the mouth of the Lord that they were to live by? They were God's promises to give them the land, the promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, the assurance that the law was for their good always, the instructions for sacrifice and sanctification feasts, and festivals, and the announcements of God's intention to bless the whole world through them. The same mouth that had promised to miraculously send manna every morning and had delivered on that promise also made these other promises. So every day as they ate the manna, it should have instilled confidence that all of God's promises are as good as done. The question as they stood on the boundary of Canaan was, would Israel believe and act on everything God had said? Would they trust his guidance, obey his commands, and cherish his promise? Moses knew that the goodness and abundance they were about to enter into might lull them into forgetting the source of those blessings. And the reason he's telling them to remember all of these things is that he knows they're likely to forget. Look in Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 11. 
Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. If we don't nurture our remembering of God's provision, we slip into the delusion that we are the ones who provide for ourselves. We figure that we've earned it, we deserve it, and it's ours to do as we please. But we must remember, along with the Israelites, that everything we have, everything we are, everything we enjoy has been given to us by God and we are simply stewards of his gifts. We must take care lest we forget. Moses spoke to Israel and told them to remember what they had done, what they had heard, who they are, and what they had learned. And then in Deuteronomy 10, Moses tells them to remember what the Lord requires of them. Look in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him. Keep his commandments and don't be stubborn. It sounds simple enough, but while it's simple, certainly it isn't easy. When we read ahead into the Old Testament, we read the glad story of the Israelites entering into and enjoying the land and the life God had for them in Canaan. But we also read the sad story of how over time they didn't remember and obey all of the things Moses told them. In the years to come, they did not fear the Lord. They did not walk in his ways. They did not love him or serve him or keep his commandments. In fact, they experienced many of the curses Moses warned them about should they disobey God. Eventually, they were enslaved, scattered, and exiled from the land of promise. And it would seem to be a very sad ending to a sad story. And it would be the end if it were up to them to turn things around. But it's not up to them. These are God's people, and he has no intention of allowing them to be alienated from him and his promises forever. At the end of Deuteronomy, we discover that the Spirit of God gave Moses the prophetic eyes to see how God will bring about their restoration to the land. Moses actually told the people about God's promise to one day restore them to the land even before they had entered the land. Turn to Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 1. 
When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Here is the foundation for hope as they reckon with the reality of their future failure. Their hope is not based on something as flimsy as their ability to obey, but on something as solid as God's promise. God has promised not just to bring them back to the land, but to do something in their hearts. Earlier in Deuteronomy, the people were told to circumcise their hearts. But how were they going to do that? How could they, by their own power and will, cut away their sinful stubbornness toward God, their deliberate forgetfulness of his ways? They couldn't. While they had the natural ability, they didn't have the moral ability. But God promised through his prophet Moses that he would one day do for them what they could not do for themselves. We know that God always provides to us what he requires of us, and this was no exception. Years later, through the prophet Jeremiah, God sent Israel a reminder of this same promise. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And through the prophet Ezekiel, he sent yet another reminder of this promise in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised to do something in their hearts by his spirit, 
that would enable his people to keep his law. Not because they had to, but because they would want to. When Jesus, the greatest of all prophets, finally came, the Israelites had turned the law delivered to them by Moses into an unbearable burden and seemed to have completely and conveniently forgotten its demands upon their affections. Matthew describes a scene in which a diligent keeper of the law came to Jesus. In Matthew 22, verse 35, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Of course, the Pharisee knew this command from Deuteronomy 6.5. In fact, as a faithful Jew, he would have repeated it twice a day. But as Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus knew that something had to happen in their hearts. The clear evidence that they had no real love for God was that they hated Jesus. If God were your father, you would love me, he said. Jesus also knew what it would cost for them to be able to love the Lord with all of their hearts. It would come at the cost of his life. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 25, we read, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Like Moses, he was charging his hearers to remember. But it wasn't all the demands of the old covenant God had made with the people in Moses' day that they must remember, but rather the benefits of the new covenant. They would need to remember the day that Moses had prophesied about, the day when God circumcised their hearts by cutting off his own son from the land of the living. They would need to remember the darkness that came down in the middle of the day as the full force of the curses warned about in Deuteronomy came down on an innocent Christ. They must remember it, savor it, and embrace it. They must rely on his death on the cross as their own so that they will be able to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is needed for our hearts to be circumcised is to be united to Christ by faith so that his circumcision becomes ours. This is how our sinful stubbornness and inability to love God is cut away from our hearts. In Colossians 2, in verse 11 through 14, we read, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We must be in him, identified with him, tethered to him. The only way we will ever be able to love the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind is as we abide in the only one who has ever loved God in this way. As his pure heart toward God begins to beat in your chest, you will experience a growing passion for God and an increasing desire to walk in his way. Joined to Christ, you need not fear that the curses of the covenant will come down on you for your lack of love and obedience to God. Because the curse for disobedience that you deserve came down upon him so that you might enjoy the favor and blessing that he deserves. Jesus, the mediator of this better covenant, has loved and served and obeyed the Lord perfectly in your place and gladly transfers that merit to you as a gift even as his spirit works in you to make this love and obedience more of a reality in your daily life. Do you long for more than a living by the rules relationship with God? Something more than dry duty? Well, of course you do. What we long for is something real and transforming to happen in our hearts. We want our hardened hearts to become soft with new affections for God. We want to find ourselves obeying God from an intrinsic desire rather than an imposed demand. And this is exactly what God has promised to give to us. And not just to us, but to our children. If we go back to Deuteronomy, we find that the promise of God was to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. This is why instead of merely pointing our children toward being good, we must continually point them toward the one who can circumcise their hearts so that they will learn to love obeying God's law, which is first and foremost about loving God with their whole being. Until this supernatural work is done by the Spirit of God, they have no heart to love the Lord. No power to obey him. What can we do? Well, just as Moses instructed, we make the word of God the center of our home, purposefully creating an atmosphere in which his word is read and discussed and revered. We pray that God, by his spirit, will do what only he can do, which is to call our children to spiritual life by uniting them to Christ. We challenge them to choose the God 
who chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we live before them in such a way that they can see the beauty of having a circumcised heart. Can your children see that God continues to cut away what is hard and resistant toward him in your heart? Can they see developing in you an ever-deepening intimate love for Christ because you know him better today than you did last year? Have they ever heard you humbly confess a specific sin or seen you depend on God's power to forsake a sin? This is what it looks like when God circumcises and writes his law on our hearts. This is the way we kindle the fires of love until he comes. When he comes, his purifying work in us will be complete so that loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength will no longer be our aim, but our experience. Imagine with me the day when we cross over into the heavenly land God has promised to give to us, when the change that must happen in our hearts is finally complete. On that day, we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, as nothing and no one will compete for our affections. On that day, we'll love the Lord with all of our mind, as all of our stubborn blind spots and willful ignorance will be gone for good. We will love the Lord with all of our soul, as his glory radiates into our very being. We will love him with all of our might as nothing trivial or temporal will sap us of strength or focus on loving him. The good news of the gospel is that although you and I have not remembered all that we are to remember, although we have not loved the Lord exclusively, obediently, and passionately, although we have lived as though his promises are not precious to us, there is one who has done so in our stead. And he is at work in us by his spirit, cutting away all of our stubborn resistance toward God. He is causing something to happen in our hearts. 